So you wanna watch a movie, but you don't know which. Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have perfected the art. So sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's dark board movie night. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put 20 movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. This week, we're talking about the oldest movie we've ever covered at almost 100 years old. It came out shortly after the birth of sound on film, yet uses it in a way that few films have ever been able to match. It's 1931's M by Fritz Lang, and this week... We are welcoming on a multi-talented filmmaker and our fourth ever guest. It's Steven Steinbecker. Steven, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here to talk yeah. about such a great film, a daunting film to talk about because it's so <laughs> fucking good. It's Yeah, it's definitely one of those where you, you I watched it and then I was just like, oh, fuck, we have to actually like sound intelligent <laughs> oh, and talk about right, this right. It's a biggin, and you know, I, I should have known right, right off the top. We get that Janus Films logo, and I was like, "Oh boy, buckle <laughs> up! <laughs> we gotta talk about this one." Yep, yep. That is always a sign that you're like, "Yep, I'm in for something really interesting here." But uh, yeah, Stephen, as I mentioned, is a filmmaker in, in his own right. He's got a film coming out called "People Having Fun." Uh, Stephen, you want to tell us a little bit about that at all? Yeah, it's a movie I've been working on for almost five years it's a half an hour long and uh i think it's the best thing i've ever done i'm really excited for people to see it uh it's pretty out there <laughs> when, when does that premiere uh june 30th in chicago at the chicago is better than new york festival very is cool. that the name truly that is the name truly of the, the name of the festival <laughs> dude and i also let's just get this out there i agree with the name of that festival i, I love chicago <laughs> it's a great town yeah, it really is. I was just there this past week, actually, but that is awesome. Do you think um, after it premieres, uh, have there been conversations about how it's going to get distributed, or is that maybe going to be discussed after the premiere or anything like that? So I DP'd a – I was a cinematographer on a, a feature, like a slasher, that was getting shot, and they didn't get quite enough snow this winter to shoot every scene they wanted. So we did like a last little whirlwind of shooting to try to make it a shorter thing. So what might end up happening is we'll take like that 30-minute film and my 30-minute film, shoot a couple fake trailers and have ourselves a little indie grindhouse. Sort of nice. Yeah. <laughs> Quentin and Robert style. Yeah, exactly. I love it. That's great. <laughs> I'm, I'm all for that idea. That's so cool. Like, and, and can you just your mind must just go nuts when you get the idea of like, hey, you want to do some fake trailers? It's yeah. like there's no end to what you could do with that. That's amazing. Well, especially can... as a horror aficionado, I feel like your yes. brain is perfectly engineered for that kind of filmmaking. It, it's amazing because it's just you get to pack the most gross shit in as little amount yeah. of time as possible, you know? Yeah, well, through the world of trailers, it's just like it's so fun because it it's one of the few places in the art world and storytelling world that is totally open to half-baked ideas. And it's just like, oh, come on in and hang out for a couple minutes. Don't don't worry about plot holes or any of that nonsense. Let's just show snippets of a really bizarre idea. The more half-baked the idea, the better. Like if you can oh, make yeah. the gag keep at building on itself, like, yeah. Oh. Real quick, everyone's favorite fake trailer. I'm going to start Hobo with a Shotgun. Well, you took mine. Well, it, beca <laughs> it became a real movie, so yeah. I don't even know if it qualifies as a fake yeah. trailer at this point. <laughs> Dude, that's, I know. I'm, I wish they. I kind of wish they left it alone. I remember getting so excited when they announced it. I, I love like, that oh, they're movie, actually though. making it. 
The, I've never seen it actually. I think, oh wait, maybe I have. I think I decided like sleepover way back in the day. Kareem Hussein's photography on that film, I think, is brilliant. Like, I think it's one of the best looking movies of the 2010s for what it's trying to do. It was ahead of the, head of the curve with that hyper saturated like faux Technicolor vibe. Uh, mm. And Rutger Hauer, what a performance! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, what a what a genius he is. Uh, rest in peace, man. That that guy was a real treasure. Yeah. Well, Jared, you wanna you wanna give our traditional dartboard movie night guest questionnaire here? I do, I do. So, thank you, Stephen, again for joining us. We're gonna go through this official dartboard movie night questionnaire. Question number one: What is your best movie theater experience? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, okay, well, recently I saw a Japanese film called Funeral Parade of Roses. I'd never seen before uh went in totally blind that was amazing but my number one would probably have been in 2016 i drove like three hours with my fiance to go see uh ken russell's the devils on 35 millimeter um and that's one of the best movies ever made that's kind of the only way you can really experience that film is seeing it on film um and i haven't watched it again since so that's probably my number one do you mean that literally in the sense of, like, you can't even rent it now? There or? is a, a BFI DVD that's, like, slightly censored and doesn't look very good, and it's out of print. So you can either, like, find a rip of that. Sometimes it pops up on a streaming service for a little bit, but really the, like, the best and only real way to see it as intended is find a print. Wow. That's, dude, that's 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 great. I love that. It's, it's fucked, though. Like, Warner Brothers should release that movie, like Criterion put out, like, a nice 4K or something, because it's incredible. But. We've talked about this on the show before. There are so many movies that you're just like, it's a rights issue that yeah. is so fucked up. I mean, my favorite example is uh, The Heartbreak Kid, the oh, LMA yeah. movie. Like, it's owned by a fucking pharmaceutical company, and they just will not let go of the rights for some <sighs> godforsaken reason. And, like, we're all the worse for it because nobody can watch that fucking movie, and it's genius. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that movie is is amazing. And it, it's one of the things I like about this show is it's gotten me into collecting DVDs and Blu-rays again because you know how it is like something could come out about a filmmaker and their work could just be pulled off of platforms and we won't be able to get access to it. So yeah. um, that anyway. happens every day. Like on HBO yeah. stuff is getting created and then destroyed so that they don't have to yeah. pay residuals. Like, yeah, insane. like they're getting rid of Westworld and yeah. I for one love season one of that show. I think it's amazing. So, um, so yeah, anyway, question number two, and this is a bit of a little, little twofer. Okay. What is your favorite Spielberg movie, and what is your favorite Scorsese movie? All right. I, I love this question. Favorite <laughs> Spielberg AI, artificial intelligence. Hell wow. What a picture. Drew uh, loves that movie. I hadn't rewatched that until last year. I'd seen it a bunch as a kid, and I loved it as a kid. And then I spent my whole like life growing up people telling me it wasn't that good. And so revisiting it and it being, like, not just better than I remembered, but, like, one of the most powerful and upsetting experiences you could have watching a movie. Holy shit. Easily the most upsetting Spielberg movie, yeah. in my opinion. And that's that's beating out Saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List. Yeah. <laughs> Schindler's List is, is pretty damn upsetting. AI I've actually never is, seen it. like, existential terror that you're just like, oh, fuck. Like, and mm. it's... There's so there's just so much to it. Like I'll I'll I'll, for, I'll forget about a specific moment and it'll come back. It'll be like oh my god! Like <laughs> it'll just like haunt your th- actually no. There there are moments in that movie I like pulled out of my head as a kid because they made me so upset that when I watch it again I'm like I can't believe this movie goes here. What the fuck? Yeah. 
but favorite Scorsese after hours. Uh, he's really at, he's at his like Whoa. technical apex. He's working with his crew from his like last couple New York flicks, and he's coked out of his mind, just making <laughs> a, a paranoid out on the town up all night thriller. Come on, doesn't get better than that for me. That's definitely Scorsese that. at his angriest. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but I, I love just about every Scorsese movie. Can't go wrong. Yeah. Casino has grown on me a lot recently. What has? Oh, Casino. Casino yeah, because yeah, I, I thought I, when I experienced that movie, I still feel this way about it. There are scenes that are unbelievable to me, but overall, I feel like it's a little overrated. Like to me, it doesn't get into vintage Scorsese territory. Like for me, that's like my upper echelon would be like Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Um, Good Raging Bulls, my number one. I, I fucking adore that movie. Things like that. But but you're saying Casino? Did did you have a similar reaction to mine at first? Yeah, I, I the like, first time good. I saw Casino, I liked it, but it didn't make that big of an impression on me. But when the 4K came out, um, the first thing that really drew me back to it was the Solomon Elaine Bass intro. Is just one of the most beautiful things ever put to film. It's like five minutes long, just Technicolor crazy uh, Casino stuff blown out with Saul Bass's Touchstone amazing look. Um, but going back into that, I just think it's Scorsese's most formally audacious film. It never lets go of the montage from the start to the end of it in a way that is insane to me. And you're right. Like, it has these, like, big, big moments that stand out. And then the rest of the movie is kind of just a blur. But I think that's the intent of the film. <laughs> and so uh, every time I watch it, I just get more out of it. Because it's like, wow, he is... This whole movie is just montage. <laughs> it's just voiceover and cool shit happening on screen. Yeah. And yeah, uh, I love it. Yeah, dude, I I like that answer for what was the actual movie though? I, f- I forget. Uh, After Hours was After the Hours. Movie, yeah. When did that come out? You said it was Coke Eight, Days, eighty four, eighty six, or something like. I think that? it's eighty six. Oh, yeah, because yeah. it was yeah, like cause... it was shortly after King of Com- King of Comedy came out and like laid a, a fucking goose egg at the the box office. Yeah, and um and then you know he kind of was in director jail a little bit in the mid mid eighties and like. I think he was, you know, post uh, we, you know, another movie we covered on the show, Heaven's Gate. Post Heaven's Gate, getting a, a budget for for his kind of movie was nearly impossible, and so he, I think he signed on to After Hours kind of as just like a fuck it, like I just I need to make something kind of thing. And that's the energy of the film. It's just yeah. like the camera <laughs> is flowing all over, and the performances are off the chain. Big and, fucking yeah. energy in that movie. <laughs> yeah, for sure. big fucking energy. Yeah, I mean, we covered uh, we covered King of Comedy for the show, and I love that movie. Awesome, holy film. shit, so good. Next question is favorite movie theater snack. Oh, uh, Twizzlers, I guess. Yeah, cool. I like Twizzlers because you know, tense scene, you can just kind of bite down on it, mm-hmm. chew into what you got. The problem with Twizzlers, they're kind of loud. Which, Drew, we saw Spring Breakers the other night, and for, I would say, maybe the last 40 minutes of that movie, someone was opening individual candies next to you. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it was kind of driving me a little crazy. The girl to the right of me, like, had she had pocketed some candy that she brought in, and, and like, it seemed like she opened at least four or five bags. It was a lot of candy getting opened. Was it like high chews or something? I wonder what That's, it was. It sounded like individual little treats. Yeah. Yeah. It did. Yeah. Either yeah, that well, or she brought in just like a giant, you know, one of those like Halloween candy bags with like the individually wrapped, you know, mini packs within it. Yeah. So she opened the big bag and then the small bag and then another small bag and another one. And it's, yeah, it was fairly obnoxious. But thankfully, I was so wrapped, at, you know, with that movie that it didn't really bother me. Yeah. Yeah. 
Last question is not movie related, oh, and what? it rotates. It's kind of the random question, and it, it's different every guest. Do you have any superstitions? Oh. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. So a couple years ago, I was living in like a really sketchy trolley, like a, a boxcar from <laughs> the early 1900s up on a mountain. And I had a really creepy landlord who would just like come in the, come in the trolley without our permission. It was just not a good situation. <laughs> And it was at the start of COVID, so I was doing whatever I could to make a buck, which meant I was, like, editing and coloring church services. Mm. <laughs> so I was up in the middle of the night <laughs> editing this church service, and I heard, like, a noise, and it felt like there was a me, like, still looking at my monitor and a me that looked over. And when I looked over, there was, like, a guy in a burlap sack in the corner of the trolley. <laughs> It's the most basic story I've ever heard. And I was like, what the fuck? And I just, like, looked back at my monitor and just pretended like it didn't happen. Wow. (laughs) And uh, I didn't talk about it for, like, six months. So do you have any sort of, like, a superstition? Or or was it, like, a ghost? What do you think it was? I don't... I don't... There was, like, a specific corner in the trolley that kind of creeped me out. Like, where Mm. these two ends of the trolley met, and it was very dark there. And that was where I saw him. I don't... It could have just been me being tired, I guess. Yeah. I didn't feel I didn't feel threatened. That was what was weird about it. It was like yeah. the feeling I felt when it happened was something I've never experienced before. So um, was the superstition then that you just didn't ever go near that corner? No, it, I mean, I just I saw like something. That's I mean, <laughs> it's not that I like I kept living in that place until the the landlord woke my fiance up in bed one day, and then Jesus. I called the cops like, "Hey, this isn't cool." And then the cops were like, "You're getting evicted." <laughs> well, yeah, that's how that works. That's how that works. <laughs> Fair enough. Love this country. That's, you need to write a movie about that, dude. Yeah, yeah I, it's Lab like Sackman. actually a plan, kind of, uh, but. <laughs> Uh, I I will say I had I had a short film that I'd been working on about a ghost that I had not finished because I just couldn't quite like wrap the visuals up, I guess. Mm -hmm. And after that experience, I figured out how to finish the film. Um, And uh, I think it's one of my better things. So, yeah, that's awesome. Dogs on YouTube. Check it out. Drew, do you have any uh, superstitions? I've never asked you this before. Um, I. I don't think I have superstitions in general, but the I when it comes to like my sports teams, like when I get like you know specifically Everton and and uh, Clemson football, I can I can get pretty superstitious about like what I'm wearing or like what I'm snacking on. Like I want it to be like consistent. If things are going well, like I don't fuck with the energy. So like there was one year. Uh, during a Clemson football season where I was cracking a beer the second that they kicked the the initial kickoff every game and we kept winning so I just kept doing that so I got I got kind of superstitious with that kind of stuff but like I haven't uh I haven't had any supernatural uh uh experiences that have led me to be superstitious I'll say that yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I haven't either. Ghosts are one of those things where, uh, like, for me, I'm like, all right. Like, I've never had an experience with a ghost, but I'm not going to tell anybody that they're crazy for 
for seeing one. So yeah, no. if you saw it, you saw it, man. I wasn't there. The older I get, the more I believe in like energies and like the universe yeah. being fucking weird. So and like, yeah. If yeah. if I have to guess, it was like a guy like slipping through time or something. That was the mm. vibe I get. Like someone who was lost and didn't. But I don't know. It was very brief. <laughs> yeah. So. Again, the lack of being concerned is fascinating to me. It, like, yeah. Be like, oh, it's not threatened. There's a guy there, huh? Yeah. And I just like looked back yeah. at the. Guess screen I'm going and, back like, to what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's that, that time magic time traveling sack he's in <laughs> through dimensions. <laughs> the sack great, traveler. There's your name. Story. Um, you First time saw... I've told that story on the record. I'll have you know. <laughs> That's awesome. We got a fresh scoop, man. It's, it's uh, the only the only uh, downside is we don't have a large enough audience that uh, we don't <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. that it'll get too much traction because that is yeah. a hell of a story. So. That's a great. That's a, that is a great tale. I was in um, I was traveling for work this pack, past week and I was in a ballsy hotel that had a thirteenth floor. Oh, shit. I was like, hell yeah, dude! Thirteenth floor in a hotel. Fuck those superstitions. I'm generally not superstitious. Uh, but I do not like when Triple Six shows up. Mm. I tend to be like, yeah, it seems like bad. Like the other day, I was returning a rental car, and the person like dips their beak into the window, like, oh, what's the uh, what's the mileage at? And I'm like, oh, the mileage, it's six six six. Fantastic. And, like, <laughs> had I known, like this is how zany again. Had I known when I was pulling in, I probably would have done like another lap around just, just to get, get that one mileage, more tick. Yeah, get one more tick. Which is, I, I recognize that that's absurd and ridiculous, but it's a superstition I have. So, what are you going to do? I guess that's probably more what the question was looking for rather than, have you seen a ghost? <laughs> yeah, but I like that. I, I prefer I'm so your glad answer. you like ghosts. Like, yeah, who gives a fuck about inside out socks? Like, let's talk about ghosts. <laughs> well, that's been our guest questionnaire. Glad to have you on the show, Stephen. But uh, let's let's move into M a little bit here. Let's start with uh, a quick board review to give us uh, an idea of where we sit with the current board. At number one, we've got You Can Count On Me. Number two, Akiru. Number three, today's episode, M. Number four, Rio Bravo. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Pi. Number nine, Get Carter. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, Coraline. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Night Moves. Number 14, The Karate Kid. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Secrets and Lies. Number 17, Titan. Number 18, Snatch. Number 19, Strange Days and Number Number 20, The Terminator. Just quick question, Stephen. Any any on that list that you're like, ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. Right? I want to uh, see that. The Straight Story is excellent. If oh, I'm so excited. That. That's the last original. That's our last original movie from the original. It's original made it through Italian. 50 episodes and we haven't that had it. That is crazy. Yeah. Uh, and that's, and that's a good. I'm very excited about that. Um, <clears throat> so M, if memory serves, is a true choice. Drew, how did you hear about this movie and what led to you kind of with having that thought of, let's get it up there. Let's get it up on the old board. So it's a movie that I've been aware of for a while. Um, Steven, I think I said to you that this was my first Fritz Long movie. And I, I realized after I said that, that that's not true. I watched Metropolis when I was in my in, in college doing my film studies minor. I was surprised that you hadn't seen Metropolis. I was yeah. like... At least you've seen some of Metropolis, surely. Like. For sure, no. I we so I I took um I took a, a film class on film noir, nice. and we watched Metropolis as kind of like a precursor to like uh, chiaroscuro lighting and totally. and kind of German expressionism like that that sort of thing. So um, I have seen Metropolis, but I so I've been aware of M 
as a movie for a while. I also, you know, knew about Peter Lorre in this movie and was, you know, kind of intrigued by that. But the impetus for putting it on the board was somebody that I follow on on Letterboxd. I don't I, honestly, I don't even remember who it was at the time, but I saw somebody log this movie and I I clicked on it and read the, you know, the the brief plot synopsis. And I was like, this movie was made in 1931. That sounds fascinating. We need to watch this. And yeah, so I think the very next day we were recording and I threw it on the board. Um, so that that's kind of why it got onto the board. But uh, I, I think the other part of it was just like, you know, we, we've, we've done a lot of movies from, you know, 1970 onwards. But we haven't done a, to- a, a, a movie from just like the very early days of film. And, you know, in one of our like early recordings when we were doing our test records and kind of, you know, trying to figure out what this show was, we did King Kong. And you and I were just both so blown away by how well that movie held up that I was like, I, I wonder if this will be true of, of another one that we can throw on. And lo and behold, M 100% held up, um, which is so cool to see. But uh, but yeah, that's how it got on the board. Yeah, I think it's so cool when you brought up King Kong because I remember I saw a snippet where Peter Jackson was talking about it and when they were like, they were going to try to recreate this mythical kind of lost footage from the original King Kong and using the same techniques and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he said he loved to see when he would show the film to people working on on the modern day King Kong like younger people who had never seen it. He really enjoyed their reaction to be like, oh shit, this is actually like a really good movie. And it totally is. Like I remember seeing the skyscraper or skyscraper, the Empire State Building sequence like out of context. And it's kind of jarring and it looks old fashioned. But when you see the movie in one big piece, it is exceptional. Have you ever seen that movie, Stephen? The uh, original King Kong? I, I am a Ray Harryhausen nut. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I grew up watching that. I had like a big Ray Harryhausen box set that did not have that or like Clash of the Titans or any of his like really good movies. It was all of his like mm-hmm. B-tier work. Still love mm-hmm. all that stuff. Even if it's oh, like awesome. an hour of people wandering an island for like five minutes of big crabs. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Ray Harryhausen's effects in the original King Kong are some of the coolest things that have ever braced the silver screen, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. And just in general, it's a really cool movie, but like obviously the effects work is what, what sells it, I think. Well, what I was blown away by, when, and not to spend too much time on King Kong, but just like the way that they were doing the um, the rear projected effects. Yeah. It works. Like mm-hmm. it still to this day looks pretty goddamn good. Yeah. And, and like, man, that, that sort of stuff is just, it's so cool when you can watch a movie that's, you know, nearing a hundred years old and just be like, this still is effective. It still is giving me this sense of, you know, this thrilling experience that, you know, a movie that spends $400 million on its, its CGI, you know, does today. It's, it's just, it's yeah. so impressive. Well, it's crazy too, because that movie is so violent. The original King Kong. Yeah. I was like, holy hell, I didn't know they uh, made movies so violent back then. And then this movie, tonight's movie M, is so uh, has so much implied violence, but it's uh, it's shocking in a different way. It's like, oh, I didn't know they made movies this dark back then. Well, they just, they, they really <clears throat> didn't. Uh, there was a one of the things I was reading up on for this was an American producer showed this to like his team. He showed M to his team, like we need to be making movies like this. And somebody pointed out to him, you would never have approved a script about a child killer. And he was like, you're, you know what? You're right. <laughs> like, we need to get past that. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's it's incredible that this movie was made in 1931, but uh, and immediately banned in Germany. <laughs> like, yeah, with that's, the rise of... that's crazy. I mean, and, well, and just to confirm, Stephen, you've never seen it as well, right? Because I know Drew and I have I not have seen, seen it as... before, but only oh, one time. Okay. I saw it when I was 19, I think. So oh, cool. How did you hear about it? Do you remember? Just one of those movies I always wanted to see. Uh, I saw Metropolis pretty young, so it was something I like found out about and was curious about. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember I rented a like a criterion dvd from the library and was shocked mm. by how quiet the movie was <laughs> yeah 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 well we'll get to the sound portion because yeah. that's definitely a huge part of of talking about this movie but let's start with just overall thoughts um i guess we'll start with with jared just uh given that this is also as well as mine the your first viewing experience of this what did you think of them it's hard when you get these older movies right to kind of like well you want you want you want to Think of it in context of the time. You want to think about how it holds up now and all these things. So it's a, it, a lot of times they're hard to talk about. Like this movie is going to be tricky. Just I mean, the title is a disaster. Let's just say that. <laughs> the title is so difficult to Google. They weren't predicting the internet, those idiots. But it's not a, it's not an easy movie to track down. And, and it's an, obviously a very troubling subject matter. Um, but in addition to that, we have this whole like, well, you know, it was made in 31 and all this stuff. I will just say overall, I really thought it was great and very thoughtful and and very thought provoking and terrifying and disturbing, and uh, definitely did not seem like it was made in thirty one. Like if I had seen this movie, ig- being ignorant of the of the year it was made, and so I was on a game show, I would probably guess like. 44 or something like that. I mean, I guess that obviously not that because it's in Germany in the 40s, but you know what I mean? I would have guessed like not 31. Like well, that's crazy to me. You know, it's interesting you say that just like to give a little bit of context for people who don't know that might be listening to this, you know, well, and also, I mean, this this movie is not totally subject, subject to this uh, exact thing, but, you know, 1931 in film, there wasn't really like any guardrails in terms of like a rating system or like, you know, this was, this was pre the Hayes code and pre the MPAA. So, you know, at that time you had movies that were kind of testing these boundaries more than you did even 10 years later. So it's interesting you say 1944, because by that point the Hayes code was fully implemented and movies were not, you know, you couldn't even like portray people sleeping in the same bed like you know stuff like that so like there was a lot more strict guardrails there at that point but 1931 is is kind of an era where they're really pushing these boundaries with stuff you know like scarface in the u.s and you know just really going into dark territory which you know is is something that people don't really think about when they think about movies that are this old yeah no, it's it's crazy. And like and we will obviously talk about what that means to us, the context of this coming out in 31, but but also on the movie as it stands on its own. Like how do I feel about it watching it today? And I think it is a lot of those things I mentioned. It's beautifully shot. It has some of the best faces I've ever seen yes. on on screen. Like I just I get drunk on these amazing real looking people that are so unique and bizarre. Lots of tiny guys, very small. Lots of tiny small guys. Yeah, <laughs> nobody looks like quote unquote normal. Everyone has some sort of quirk in their features that, and I just love that. But I will say that I personally find the line between suspense and frustration to be pretty thin, and. Watching this movie this past week, I watched it twice. 
uh, I think a couple of times it trip dribbled over that line for me personally, where I was like, okay, I get what they're going for here suspense wise, but it's actually dipping into frustration for me. And I'm getting, what's kind an of example of that? Annoyed. I was wondering that too. <laughs> yeah. So like, and let's say like, um, the, the blind, the blind person hears the whistling and it's like, is he going to find someone in time to alert, you know, to be like, Hey, Hey, what's a, uh, so he's like looking around. He's like, I anybody anybody and someone walks up he's like yeah i kind of see that guy and like he's like after him and it's like i don't know that to me wasn't super suspenseful i was just kind of annoyed at his inability to get anyone near him quickly <laughs> like you know so it's like i love the clunkiness of that scenario <laughs> like all these like because the guy he goes to the goes to for help does not seem capable <laughs> of like getting the job done <laughs> and of course he ends up having up the great idea of the m, the m on yeah. his hand but like also, like, all the stuff about, like, Peter Lorre when he's hiding in, like, the attic area towards the end of the movie. Like, that stuff to me was, like, the, some of the decisions the characters were making were just annoying me. Like, the guy hearing Peter Lorre pick up the locks, right? And then he just starts running around, leaves the door that the person they're looking for is at, leaves it unguarded, and goes down, like, two flights of ta- stairs to sell to tell the safe cracker specifically and i'm just annoyed I'm like that's i get that it's tension yeah and it's and it's suspense but it's leading me to get a little annoyed with it but that's so that was that was like my 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 nitpick of negativity and i did want to kind of get that out there and we can explore it further as the conversation flows sure. but overall i really thought it was a great movie and we haven't really talked about yet and we're just starting so it makes sense but like how thoughtful the movie is and how like it really does place this huge question in your lap of like is you know is the death penalty ever warranted and it's like it's a huge question i think people still are trying to gamble with in cinema to this day and mostly fumbling when they try to address and this movie has the right take and it's yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. and it's just like it's it just really uh it's it's strangely uh delicate Mm-hmm. with with yeah. its with its take on this and it's strangely in my opinion anyway it seemed somewhat unopinionated and yeah. it just kind of threw the facts out there it's like well do we try to cure these people or no, do I we don't, try to yeah, eliminate it doesn't have them? a clear cut answer to it at all no. it's very it's very much like it's not preaching what do you think uh, about this yeah. what, what yeah, are it's your like, takeaways how would you punish this person yeah. and and it's uh, it's so that all of that stuff is really really good i do think this might be sacrilege people might be coming from my head but I do think that at sometimes Laurie goes a little over the top, but that can oh, be written yeah. up to his 31. I mean, come on. I mean, he's got an amazing look. I love the way he this is. This is the hottest movie. take he might have given <laughs> on the show because this is like one of the best performances I've ever seen. Right, really? What, what I will say, and I agree with you, Drew, but what I will say is I think the introduction of Laurie does his performance a disservice. I don't okay. think that first scene of him looking in the mirror and being like, oh, really? it's not... It's not that I dislike it. I think yeah, what yeah. makes Laurie incredible in this movie is the way he looks when he is pushed into a corner. Yes. When yes. his okay. eyes are bugging out Shocked and when eyes. he is yeah. desperate. Like, yes. And so yeah. it's not that he's not there in the rest of the, the scenes, but those are the scenes why people come to this movie and they're like, no, this is one of the best performances ever. Um, yeah, the way – I could see that. Like when he's in a corner and his back is against the wall, he shines. But I'm thinking like when he collapses – and at tw- and he's he's on trial by the you know sort of the kangaroo court thing they got going on there, and he's like, uh, 
and he's just like, it's on my mind. He's like squeezing his head. It's like a little kind of Frankenstein-y to me, a little kind of like a little too I, much. I, yeah, maybe I'm being I mean, un- I, I just, I think that there's maybe really- Maybe I'm being unfair. I think there's really important context that needs to be said with that, which is like, yeah. this movie came out four years after the advent of sound. People right. weren't used to having to like project their voice on screen. And I think that, some of those p- parts of the performance maybe can be read as as big and over the top, but like you do have to contextualize it a little bit and give it a little bit of a, a curve on the grade for that, in my opinion. But I want to circle back to Peter Laurie a little bit later. But I want to I want to move over to Stephen and say, you know, given this is your second experience with this movie, what was your experience the first time you watched it, and did it improve or or diminish in your mind on the second viewing? So the first time I watched it, I watched it because I wanted to see like a spooky movie with Peter Lorre in this creepy role. And that's not really what the movie is. And it's not like when I went into it, I was disappointed. It's just like I didn't engage with it the way I wanted to. Mm -hmm. Um, So this time going into it, knowing it's more about the hunt for Peter Lorre and the community aspect and all that stuff. um, I definitely had a better, better time. Like I, I think I had it at a four before and I'll probably rate it a five this time just because I think it's fucking amazing. Like beat for beat, one of the best. Yeah. I, I, I can understand where you're coming from there. There's definitely those movies you watch when you're younger and you come in with like preloaded expectations. And when you, when you can distance yourself from those and like you've already seen it, it does like age better in your mind. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I think I was almost expecting it to be something like Nosferatu because the way people talk about it, all they really talk about is the whistling and like the creepy imagery and stuff. So like going into it and having it be this very talky, very explorative look into what would happen to a community in a crisis like this. um, I don't know. I, I think it's awesome that that's what the movie is, but I do think it'll probably throw some people off when they go into it. It's almost like a procedural, you it know, is, like yeah. in the first, at least in the first half, like it, it, you know, I, I, when I was watching it, I was getting vibes of like contagion, you know, yeah. I feel like that movie like pulled a lot from this in terms of just like, you know, it, it's cutting between all these different perspectives and, you know, there's, there really is no central character in the first hour plus of the movie. Um, it, it, it really just like is like, okay, let's analyze this situation and see, okay, what are the police doing? What is the, you know, the the mob that that's growing like to try and solve this on their own? What are they doing? What like uh what are the various like, you know, variables that are getting introduced to this whole situation? And I think like it's just it's really interesting to watch, you know, as like a procedural like and, and just analyzing like human instinct. Like what are what are our impulses when we get put into this situation that we don't understand where this, you know, this violence that is just beyond our comprehension is happening. Um, like how do we react to that? Um, I think is, is just really fascinating. I also was like getting vibes of, um, Denny Villeneuve's, uh, uh, prisoners a little bit in the early bit. Um, just like, you know, the very like human reactions we have to these inhuman acts that we experience. Like, uh, I don't know. I just, I, I found all that stuff really, really fascinating. Well, it's interesting, too, because I generally do not respond to serial killer stories. I just don't find them interesting, and I don't know. There's something about them I just don't like, even just as an entertainment mystery level. Um, But all that said, it is kind of interesting to see where all this stuff is coming from, kind of the origin story of that type of story being like, you know, Drew and I in a pre-chat talked about sympathy for Lady Vengeance. I I mean, obviously a ton of that is... A ton of this is in that movie, I should say. And even movies like 
seven where the person is maybe a little more mastermindy diabolical but like we see where all of this is getting started and um i don't know that was that was that was pretty cool too i thought but have you guys seen spike lee's summer of sam because that was something i kept thinking of throughout this it's a similar Mm. it doesn't really focus on it's about david berkowitz but it's not really about david berkowitz it's about the fear in the community um the reaction to the violence um in in a similar way to this that's really cool yeah that i have not seen that and it sounds really cool because i think that was my favorite part about the movie honestly about m was the exploration of the community's reaction yes and like the 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 dialing up of paranoia like when that older person is confronted on the street pretty early on in the movie those wide angle shots the low angle the high angle incredible so how cool is that speaking of spike lee that's like a spike lee shot where he's looking up at the tall guy Mm -hmm. and the can is the camera pov looking down yeah it's like that's like a 90s like modern day like flashy dashy shot you know what i mean and one of the first like real gags of the movie like a very funny mm-hmm. visual idea stretched out yeah. as far as they could get it like that guy's glasses look so huge in the frame it's, it's so great i just i love i mean speaking of just those high and low angle shots just like i love everything early in this movie where it's just this smoky room and yes. people just deliberating on like what do we do about this and like you know people are getting worked up and like you know accusing other people of things it's just like it, it's it's so effective. Yeah. Well, and how crazy is it, like, watching it with a modern-day perspective on knowing where Germany is headed at this time? Yeah. So, like, I mean, it's impossible to remove that from the equation when we're watching this now. But as it explores ideas of police overreach and mm-hmm. intrusion in, in privacy and what that you know, and and and, and mob again, mentality, in this, yeah, mob mentality, yeah, the failure mob of the mentality. state to protect anyone, mm-hmm. and just like, um, yeah, sort of like the the ineptness of a lot of the levels of bureaucracy in some ways. Even though I don't think any of those characters in this film are painted in a villainous way, they're all trying their best. But the movie does such a good job of showing exactly how difficult this issue would be to tackle. But it's just it's fascinating to be like, oh man, like watching it now, be like, that's how quickly a nation can can be lost like because yeah. we're seeing germany it seems like very stable like they're having this interesting discussion within this film of like how harshly do we punish and things like that and it's like you know all of the decisions seem justifiable that the law makes in this film to me but we know how quickly the country is going to lose that and it's heartbreaking in that context and i found it kind of unavoidable in a way. well it's also really important to to note uh in terms of like historical context for when this was being made you know fritz long and uh peter laurie were both jewish and you know when this movie was being made this was you know, the nazi party was already coming to power they were basically the second largest party in the country at the time and they were gaining momentum and you know, th- this movie is directly confronting the mob mentality of like, and, and, you know, uh, utilitarianism and just like, like it w- is doing something just because the majority wants it. Is that the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. This film's co-writer, Fritz Lang's wife, two years later was a Nazi member. Like wow. they, they divorced over the production of the next film. He had to flee the country because she became a full blown Nazi. 
So Jeez. it's like that turmoil is in the script because it was happening not just in the country, in his household. Like, wow. Well, and that probably wow. explains the open-ended nature of the ending too. Absolutely. In terms of like leaving it up to you to determine what is what do you think needs to happen here? Because it, it's showing the hypocrisy on on all sides of of the the equation in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like like the the most prominent example being the. Um, I don't know if he's like a gang leader or what what he is, but the the main figure safe, of the mob, safe cracker, I think is how he's referred to. Like. Right, but he's but he's kind of this underworld leader in some right. way, yeah. and mm-hmm. you know he's he's committed crimes and murdered people in his own past, uh, and you know he's also leading this um, this mob against this this person who's committed these heinous crimes. So like, you know, it, it's it's leaving it up to you to be like, well, who's in the right here? Because this guy's a killer too. Yeah. I don't but, know, all that stuff is fascinating. Like, like it, it, it explores that so well, because it's like, who catches Peter Laurie? It is the mob. But in order to do it, this this movie very graphically shows you all the doors <laughs> that have to be broken down, all of the yeah. carnage that has to be left in their way. crimes, yeah. And I feel like that's also punctuated so well by the final scene with, like, the police chief, where he's smoking that giant cigar... And he's talking to that character, and he has no idea that what he's working on is going to lead him to <laughs> Peter Lorre. Right. Um, that moment when he drops the cigar is just so incredible in that giant cloud of smoke. Yeah, <sighs> and, and then he, he goes into the bathroom to gather himself, yeah. and he like cleans his, like splashes some water in his face and combs his hair back. He's like getting also, like sexually charged by. It. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he but the scene right before that too, like he just looks so exhausted. I like it's one of the most it's one of the best portrayals of exhaustion I've ever seen. He's drinking coffee. There's that shot from under the table that I actually texted, texted Drew today. Yeah. And I was like, "What a shot!" Where it's like focused almost on his nutsack, and it's just such bizarre framing. But he just looks so tired. He's drinking that coffee. We've all hit that stage where the coffee isn't working anymore, but you're still just dumping it in the furnace, and he's just like dishwater again. He just looks so exhausted. But when he comes out from like refreshing himself, he just immediately lights into another cigar. Yes. Like, just, <laughs> just finished it <laughs> oh man yeah i i don't know just when you think about the context of this movie i mean it, it, you know it's it's phenomenal in its own right just you know uh, in in what it's analyzing but when you contextualize it further it's just it it's a miracle that this movie was made when it was yeah um and that and it's you know i i, I don't think when people you know this is a common theme on this show. We kind of just talk about like people in our generation's reticence to watch these old movies. Um, you know, the, be it the, the, uh, the, the black and white nature of it or, or just, you know, something that, that prevents people from diving into these things. And it's like, it makes me so sad because you like, you watch this stuff and it's, and it's just as present and, and important as it was then. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Like I, I can't think of a movie that that could be more applicable to like our modern experience right now uh, than than something like this. Like it, it's 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 important, and like you know, I think so many people would get so much more out of film if they realized like if they got past their hangups around like subtitles and black and white and whatnot. Yeah. Well, and this one's got just to your point, Drew. So many potentials to, to, to snag the casual film viewer and be like no they're not going to do it it's like 
It's it's in German, which is is sometimes a difficult language to listen to for my ears anyway. It's very kind of stilted and up and down. It's very kind of like you know, and then you got subtitles. It's black and white. The audio is kind of going in and out. So there, it's not the easiest. And the subject matter is super super dark. So it's a really challenging watch on like every layer. But I think it's so worth it. So if anyone out there is listening and like haven't seen this movie yet, and they're totally like it. It's really it's absolutely quite amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's probably yeah. better than anything you'll watch this month. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's fair to say. And also, Drew, I know I don't know where you're at on this stuff, Stephen, but Drew, in the past, has admitted to loving a good investigative story. I didn't know this about Drew until we talked about all the president's men for the oh, show. And yeah, he's like, love I love them. like stacks of paper and stuff like that. And like, and when they're getting those files in this movie and M, and like they're like combing through all the people who have been released from mental asylums and like all these different things like i'm like drew must be loving this stuff right now i was so locked in i I love i love watching people who are good at their job like do their job effectively and like not i don't think that's totally applicable to this movie that's what i I was about to say was like i like this one because they're really not very effective no no yeah they're they're like inept in a lot of ways but but at the same time like i just i just like people going through the motions and like like seeing you know what does it take to get from point a to point b in the in this particular situation so definitely was very into all that stuff i think um I think if I if I were to levy any criticism at this movie, I think it does uh, does lose steam a little bit uh, in the midsection of the movie. I think like the initial procedural elements were just like I was fully locked in. I lost a little bit of interest when when it got into just the mob trying to hunt down Peter Laurie, but then it circles to that that uh, trial sequence at the end, which is just one of the most masterful sequences I've ever seen. Um, stylistically, photographically, uh, uh, dialogue, like every element of that is like pure cinema to me. And it, it, it wraps the entire story up into a neat bow, but, but an unneat one at the same, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it. It just, it, it was transcendent. Yeah. Well, how about that shot when Peter Lorre turns around for the first time? when he like gets delivered to the basement area, wherever this is happening. And we just get that, that kind of panning shot that's the just like crowd. revealing the whole crowd that's there and yeah. it's just chills jeez like, like that is just great by any decade who cares when that was like that would look great today that shot yeah and oh, it does sure. it looks amazing yeah. looks better than anything coming out this year yeah, <laughs> for sure. the eye lights in this movie are insane yeah. especially with yeah. Laurie's big beady eyes like mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. also just the shadow play and so much of the movie is crazy um, but I, I wanted to say before we get into that, that last section, the, the chase, I, I get why you don't like the guy having to run downstairs and, and go, uh, like yeah, yeah, let yeah. them, but once they're looking for Lori in that room and it's mm-hmm. just those dark, empty spaces and the yeah. flashlights beaming around and Lori sinking deeper and deeper into that pit. I think that's probably the highlight of the suspense in the film. Like as far as actually ringing real tension out and it's still, having that impact to this day. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Like, um, I do I do like that part. Um, and, and I do like the tension that's built for the alarm going off. And they almost leave. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, my God, are you going to bail on finding this guy? And so I, I do I – do, I think I agree with you. I think that is the most suspenseful part of the film. Other than maybe the – and this is kind of, I guess, different, but the dread in the very beginning is – 
is real. When like the mother at home is yes. just like, oh my gosh, and like the shots of the empty chair. And like well, the empty I, I was going to say the like, shot oh of of the balloon and the power lines and the oh. ball rolling away. Like all that imagery yeah. is just unreal it's when, so good it's so depressing when the so blind man haunting. brings the balloon back at the yes. end that high angle is insane so because it's like the camera's like floating up with the balloon with that whole crowd mm-hmm. behind them oh, mm-hmm. and and it's and it's the mic drop moment where you're you know everyone's like all coming to the same realization at the same time it's great well i just wanted to say um about peter laurie getting as big as he does at the end I feel like the movie kind of addresses that because it's like the first time he does one of those like way over the top little spiels, the camera like tilts up and his lawyer gets revealed that he's like, hey man, you shouldn't be monologuing right now. You're going to lose your head. (laughs) And that's like the introduction of that character who's like the mortal grounding of the end of the movie, but he's revealed with this hilarious gag. It's great. Uh, and, And I chuckled at that too. And then like, you know, you go from him essentially being comic relief in that moment to, like you said, being the moral center of it. Mm-hmm. And the monologue that he gives is, it's tremendous. Yeah. Like, it's its so well done. Well, you know, and I would imagine, I'll, I'll just say my experience is, when we get introduced to the lawyer, totally agreed, it's very, very funny. Um, and I'm thinking, like, the, this guy, there's nothing he could say to convince me yeah. to, that they should not right. take vengeance out on this person. Or, or and maybe not even vengeance, but just eliminate them. Like I was going into that scene of the mindset of like these types of people cannot exist. We can't have them. Sorry, like you know, I'm sorry it's a sickness, but we can't have these. T-. And he kind of makes his point, and I feel like my the ironcladness of my my opinion going into that scene really got loosened up by the the the, the strength of the writing and the performance, and how good his argument was. So I actually felt my opinion shift a little and begin to soften, which is, I think, I mean, not very often a movie can change my mind like that. You know? I think that's the whole intent of this film, though, is that one effect right there. Like, yeah. it, mm-hmm. it's building this man up as a monster and then just showing him as a sniveling baby and being like, he's just sick. He just needs to be in a fucking hospital. Like, look at this. Like, Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it really it immediately confronts all of your pre-existing, you know, uh, feelings about that character because, yeah, it, it, it the sniveling baby thing is perfect. Like it, it it's, you you know, the movie challenges you to have sympathy for the most unsympathetic person imaginable, which is like a child killer, you know, and and it and there are I I, I cannot think of another movie that so effectively challenges your your uh inherent expectations around a character like that yeah um, well and, and going back to to laurie in terms of like how big that my, my kind of my nitpicks with the size of that performance there is an argument that the character like you can make an argument that the character's doing that on purpose like he's got nothing to lose he's on his last yeah. leg he's he's giving it all he has i'm not saying he's not being in, he's not being sincere in that moment from like a character perspective but um you, you could you could kind of see that and also the movie kind of plays with it with the, the little shout outs from the crowd yes where they're like we've heard that one before and blah blah like so they're like like laurie is going so over the top and the crowd is just not not having it yeah you know, they well just keep i would agree with you except for the fact that the movie is setting up you know his um 
reluctance to be the monster that he is very early in the movie. I mean, the, when you get that shot of him, you know, looking at his reflection in, in the window and then seeing the reflection of the girl and, That's and an having awesome sequence. Yeah. yeah, that that took my breath away. Because you, you see this character, you see the conflict within him in that shot. It's completely dialogue-free. It's all in reaction on, on Laurie's face. And you see him like have the impulse, like reject the impulse. Um, then, then like, you know, it, it, everything is being played out on his face there. And then it comes back around in that sequence. And so for me, like, if you're watching as the perspective of the mob... Yeah, you're you're reading it as like, oh, this is like performative. This guy is just like on his last lot lifeline. He's doing whatever he can to survive. But when you contextualize it with that bit earlier in the movie, you're just like, oh no, this is actually what he's dealing with. Like he's really like conflicted and he doesn't want this, but he also, you know, it's it's like the thing where you're like, you know, you have these impulses of like, oh, this feels good, but I know I shouldn't be doing this. Um, but taken to the the most extreme example you could imagine yeah um i don't know it just like it, it's 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 tragic to me and and For like sure. it, you, i think like the fact that this movie sells you on that tragedy is is miraculous it's because laurie's physical demeanor isn't really scary it's just like pathetic and yeah. upsetting to look at it's something it's the type of thing you don't want to confront but that's what this whole movie's about is it's like no look he's a human too you're gonna have yeah. to deal with that <laughs> the easy out is to be like look at this monster but it but like it, it's it's not you know life is never that that black and white and we would love it to be we want it to be just like the the good or the bad you know and 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 in reality, it's way more complicated in almost every situation. I mean, yes, there are the monsters in the world who are just like, you know, pure evil and there's, there's you know, nothing you can uh, make sympathetic about it. I mean, you know, 1930s Germany, Hitler is a perfect example. Like there's, there's no... I think I, I heard on a podcast talking about like people who have played Hitler. It's like, what do you, what do you have to like do in your brain to latch onto something sympathetic within that character that you can portray? It's like, there is nothing, but like this movie finds a way to make this character uh, uh, sympathetic. I think that's, that's yeah. really incredible. Dude, t- completely agree. And I'd heard that uh, Fritz Lang casting Peter Lorre for this role with, Part of his intention was he wanted to get something who looked someone who looked least like a killer, like so he gets this kind of pudgy, bug-eyed, kind of silly-looking person, mm-hmm. and I think it's super effective to get someone who does not l- look like what we would imagine, say, like a, a psycho would look like, and um, yeah, I think it's yeah, it's to the movie's strength. Well, we brought up Peter Lorre. he's you know a legend in in the acting community. Um, and this performance is is maybe his uh, his ultimate tour de force. Um, Stephen, what's your background with Peter Lorre? How many films have you seen of his, and and what are your feelings on him as an actor generally? So I don't think I've seen too many of his movies. I've definitely seen Maltese Falcon, Casablanca. Um, I want to see The Man Who Knew Too Much. He's a great character actor. Always knows how to put in the work. Um, Maltese Falcon. He's especially sleazy in in a way. I feel like he kind of isn't in these other movies. Like there, he's like a little bit of a player in like a creepy way. <laughs> like yeah. 
Um, but I also haven't seen that in a while. So I think I might be due to just kind of like work through his filmography a little more and see what Yeah, I, f- I feel similarly. And I, I've seen the same ones you have. Obvi- I mean, it's the obvious ones, the Casablanca and, and Maltese Falcon. But both of those performance, I think, are standouts in the movies that they're in. And um, yeah, he's just, he he's maybe the most unique face ever put to screen. Like, is there anyone that looks like fucking Peter Lorre? Raul Julia? <laughs> well, okay, he's <laughs> but he's more the suave version of Peter Lorre. Yes. Like, if you if you made Peter Lorre sexy, like that's that's Raul Julia. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so shocking too. Just thinking of Lorre, like in his eyes in this, like you'd think that would be like the type of stuff you'd see in like Three Stooges or like you know Laurel and Hardy sketches. Totally. It's so weird to see it used in this way. But anyway, anyway. Yeah, uh, Jared, have you seen a Peter Lorre performance before? I know you haven't seen Casablanca. Oh, wow. yeah, Cas- Casablanca is one of my shamers, um, but but no, not a lot. It's a name I was definitely familiar with, and I did not. I went through kind of a roller coaster of emotions where I'm watching this movie and I was like, "Oh, that's Peter Lorre." I don't. I didn't know he was a German actor. I knew I had heard that name, but I didn't know he was a German guy. And then I was like, oh, he also did non-German shit. So I kind of had this like, like, okay, so he's both. Um, but so all that is to say, I do not have a lot of experience with him at all. Like really just name recognition that I'm not even sure how it got in there. Um, but uh, but I definitely was familiar with the name, but wouldn't have been able to match him to his face if I was on a lineup sort of thing. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I mean, he's he's made a ton of movies, so I mean, there's a lot to dig into there. I realized um, I've also seen the Roger Corman The Raven, which is pretty fun. It's got Vincent oh, cool. Price, early Jack Nicholson performance, and quite a bit of Peter Lorre in that. So, hell yeah, yeah, yeah I didn't realize he did that. I, I'm this makes me very eager to check out some more Peter Lorre performances. I think like this performance is really just it's it's tremendous. I mean. We're we're gonna we'll mention it at the end of this episode again, just to remind people. But we're gonna be doing our uh, first fifty movies uh, as an award show uh, for their, our next episode, awesome. and I and I guarantee you this is gonna make it into my my nominations because this, for... this performance just blew me away. Really? So did you? So you both didn't think it was over the top when he was kind of collapsing? I and... I do. I just think it works for the scene. He's okay. like pushed yeah, into yeah. the corner and he's lashing out and just giving mm-hmm. it everything he can. And you have the lawyer yeah. being like, "This is not helping your case, bud." <laughs> just... Yeah, yeah. It's like in the movie they are they are calling attention to the over the topness of it. Yeah. You know. Well, and something about watching the movie today, it really put me in Lori's shoes in the way of like imagine being in front of a group of people who is just openly discussing if they're going to kill you or not yep and like how terrifying that would be well it's yeah it's i mean he's facing down the world in that moment like he's like like you know there's an existential threat to his his existence you know it's just like uh i i don't know how you would react to that generally like it's just like you know, you become an animal trapped in a corner at that point. And I think, I think that that works in the performance. And, you know, you also, some, some more context on that scene, apparently. So I didn't realize this until I was doing a little bit of research for this movie, but apparently Fritz Long was known as just being a, a reprehensible person in terms of just like putting people through the fucking ringer to get performances. And 
in 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 the shooting of this scene, you know, the climactic trial, um, you know, there was stuff like Peter Lorre was was having to throw himself into that pile of wood over and over again. Twelve times they did it. Twelve times, and he, and yeah. apparently Peter Lorre was like begging long to be like please like like let's move on please like i i'm dying here so like that's coming through in the performance too and like um i don't know i just think like like it, it's it's sad that you know some filmmakers put their actors through that but it is interesting to see what performances they get out of those kind of situations look at the exorcist that's a movie where no oh. one is ever going to use the filming techniques on that set ever again but those performances are you can't argue with. I'm like, yeah. I mean, look I mean, at what he accomplished. I mean, another Friedkin, but you know, we mentioned it earlier. But Sorcerer, uh, similar thing, like putting his actors through the fucking ringer. Yeah. Um, and and you like the desperation reads on their face, like in all of those sequences that they capture in in Sorcerer and in in Exorcist and in this movie. Well, to get back to M, uh, I think. I, I did want to highlight another performance in this movie that that stuck out to me. It's the guy who plays Inspector Carl Lohman, named Otto Wernicke. And it's the it's you mentioned it earlier, Jared, in terms of the shot from like his feet looking up at his crotch. That guy had me laughing so hard just at how like he is so over the top, and I think that that actor plays it so fucking well. Um, how'd you guys feel about that performance? Uh, hilarious. Yeah. Very consistently funny. And he had like, this movie's obviously not pro establishment, but it's also not like this guy's like a stupid villain. It's like, he's like a guy who's just not all that good at his job and thinks he's kind of good at his job. <laughs> oh, and, he thinks he's great. at his yeah, job. Yeah. He thinks I... he's great at his job. <laughs> and the contrast there is, is, is very fun. I think for sure. <laughs> Yeah, dude, I I adored him in this movie, especially that scene I was talking about earlier, where he just is so exhausted, like right before he gets the confession out of the one of the thieves. I was just like, this guy is just so funny. There's something, there's just something funny to me about seeing someone exhausted and just burnt out with their work, even though it's like life and death, like tracking this killer around the town and he's just like over it. He's just so clearly over it. It's just something funny about that to me. I think it's a consistent through line on this show that Jared and I both adore performances where the character is kind of a overconfident fool. Yes. And like I like there's nothing more funny to me than someone who enters into a situation thinking they're like the greatest thing in the world and like they just do not see how fucking uh you know just cartoonish they are as, yes. as a person. And like this guy is a perfect example of that. I, I just you mentioned it earlier, Steven, I think, but like him going into the bathroom and like gathering himself and like throwing water in his hair and slicking it back. It's just, it's so fucking funny to me watching that guy like pull himself together and be like, Oh, like, I think I finally figured this shit out, even though he didn't do shit. Yeah. I also really liked the guy who played the head of the mob, the safe character character who was kind of like the head of the trial in that whole sequence. Uh, Yeah. I thought he was great. He was like, I thought he was like Hitler's wet dream. Yeah. Like that's what that's what he thinks Aryans are. Well, the guy um, next to like him had a Hitler German. stash. The guy standing like right next to him in the trial, straight up dead ringer for Hitler. I don't know if 
that was what they were going for. But dude, is isn't it great? By the way, that that's the mustache that Hitler destroyed. Thank <laughs> yes. God, because it's a terrible mustache. <laughs> like we can we can do without that one. Yeah, I, I'm with you for sure. Yeah, he, it, it he really would have been devastating to the uh, to 80s masculinity if if he had destroyed a regular mustache, or, what oh, if, or if he got rid of the soul patch. What if oh, he had a that mullet? Sucked. Oh, Hitler with a mullet. He never would have risen to power. That's how we change history. We go back in time and we, we talk Hitler into getting a mullet. He's not getting elected. He's not seizing power with now a mullet. Now, there's a short film idea. Yeah, yeah. That's Hitler someone you're keeping mullet. an eye on. Hitler, Hitler with a mullet. <laughs> Mulleted to Hitler. He never, he never would have gotten out of art school. No. Yeah, he, he would have done yeah. well in art school if he'd only had the mullet. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, Jared, you you brought up insert shots, and and I wanted to hear what you thought about that and and why you wanted to talk about that. Well, this might just have been a product of timing, Um, but when I first watched this movie uh, in preparation for the show, and it was also first time ever, just to be clear, I had re-watched Glass Onion with the Ryan Johnson commentary on it. And he went into some detail about the importance of insert shots in movies and how he had, I think his DP or so, I can't remember who handled, was someone on the second unit did his insert shots. And he was just raving about how good this guy is. Um, so I was like watching this movie M after I'd seen that commentary. And I was like, these inserts, insert shots are incredible in M. Like there's the one I think I mentioned earlier about like the, the child's empty plate from when they like haven't returned home. It's mm-hmm. just an insert shot of that. There's the stairwell that the mom looks down in the beginning to see if her daughter is coming up the stairs. That's it's an just amazing a, shot. The depth, oh. there. beautiful yeah. shot. Yeah, just looking right down the stairs. And um, Drew, you mentioned too the balloon, uh, the the balloon and the wires, and which I don't know if you could technically you could call those insert shots, but. You know, there's just a lot of like uh, visually telling shots that are just inserted, and then there's that whole sequence where the 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 commissioner guy that we were just praising is reading the case file. Yeah, in that his was mind. the one I was going to bring up. Yeah, Fuck yeah, me. and he's like, and it's it's it cuts to insert shots that track his progress as he's reading through like certain moments of the of the dossier or whatever. Yeah. Well, it. It, it was like the psychiatric yeah. patients that had been, you know, where they were living at that time or something like that. It was all the addresses well, of the various people. Yeah, I mean, I remember it when it was like they had the the safe cracker guy or that thief they caught and he's reading it for the first time and he's like, "Wait a minute, they didn't take anything?" Like, what a bunch of fools oh, they right. broke yes. in. And, yes. and, it, and they were they're laying their uh, it was a really cool way to do it again another one of those not to sound like a, a, a dumbass modern day person, but another one of those is like, that's a really creative thought of like, how do we show, how do we show this? How do we get, give this information without it just being him reading out loud? And, and there's so much idea. personality to it too, though. Because yeah. he's like, you're, you're getting all these little cutaways of him being like, ha ha, what, what are they even Bunch doing of here? fools, yeah. like idiots. And like, yeah, and it's just like, it's like, oh, what a cool way. Like, you know. Other movies I've seen, more modern day movies, they'll show you pieces of the writing. Yeah. How lazy is that? At least they have time to uh, kind of go back and get these insert shots. So I don't know. There was something about this movie's insert shots that were really effective to me. And I thought they conveyed a a ton of story. They pulled uh, a a shit ton of weight. And they were really good. And either they were striking or gorgeous or whatever. And they were all over the movie. And I was thinking, I don't know enough about film history, but I was like, is this one of the first movies to really utilize insert shots to 
and, and, and employ those to like big effects. I mean, it's possible. I don't, I don't know. I, you know, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of, of early film in, enough to, to say whether or not it did. But I think, I think the thing I wanted to note on stuff like that is how well it blends with the other shots. Yeah. Um, and by that, I mean like, you know, when you're cutting to him going through this dossier and kind of like, like you know, uh, reading the the recounting of these events, for some reason, the way that Fritz Lang shoots it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like an insert shot. It feels like you're literally looking over this person's shoulder while they're doing it. And I don't know how he totally does that because there are those insert shots where you're cutting to, you know, hands, you know, uh, uh, holding something or or you know, browsing through something and it feels like it's, it's not that person. Like it yeah. feels like it's cutting to, you know, somebody who's just a, a hand model doing this. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, when they do that in this movie, it really doesn't feel removed from the scene at all. I think part of what makes that sequence flow as well as it does is those shots they're showing of the destruction and stuff that matches up we'd been shown about 10 minutes earlier with a different context. So because this character is revisiting that and we're seeing footage from earlier in the film recontextualized with him reading this stuff, I just think that makes the flow of that sequence uh, quite as smooth as it is. I think so, yeah. I totally agree. But I, I, that that sequence is incredible. Like I, I, I would be remiss if you could find a scene from earlier in cinema with the flow and pacing of that scene, with the narration and the way all of that's playing out. I mean, that that to me might be the, on an editing level, the coolest part of the film. I mean, just the way that it's cutting across all that stuff with the, you know, non-diegetic dialogue that that's kind of overlapping with it. Yeah. He does that throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's just so impressive uh, the way that he's cross-cutting. And, and like you said, kind of like showing you things you've already seen, but recontextualizing them like within, you know, with the dialogue that's overlapping. I, you know, it's just like the technique there is is incredible. Especially how much of the dialogue is like, it's like a conversation between the cops and criminals in different locations, all in one streamlined flow because the cross-cutting is so great. I I actually rewound at one point because I was, I wasn't confused, but I was like, did I miss something? Are they, are the cops in the same location as these characters? And I was like, no, it's just, that's how smooth the sequence is, is it's like they're almost talking to each other without (laughs) obviously being in the same geographical place. Yeah, dude, that was like again such a, for lack of a better term, just a mar- modern, ballsy move. Yeah, just to be like, you know, they'll the audience will pick up on it. Let's just cut back and forth between these two very similar conversations being held by yeah. people on opposite sides of the law, and it's fascinating. It's really, really well done. That might be my favorite sequence of the movie. It's it, incredible. Yeah, it think, is just like too. the way that he's cutting across. But and and like you said, like there aren't really like visual um, landmarks for you to identify the two sequences. No, it's you just, almost you in, all tight. Exactly. You just, some something intangible is, is like telling your brain, this is where I am now. And it orients you perfectly. I don't know how he does that. I mean, I think for me, probably my favorite scene in the movie might be when we get introduced to like the, the hub of the beggars. And they're like well, stacking all those meats and cheese. I just, I just we wanted, love that. We movie. wanted to talk about this. It, like, we have to mention that, that one because that is yes. one of the greatest single shots I've ever seen. 
Yeah, dude, it doesn't make sense. So I mean, let's see, the camera, when, when does the shot start? It, you, so it's not flashy at the start, is what's so no. fucking great about it. It's yeah. like this pretty locked down shot where you're just watching these people work. You don't even really register that it's POV until the camera starts pushing in. Yeah. And then it, it, it starts on the table, like with them sorting like the food, right? The meats. Yeah. Yeah. And then it, and then it, like you hear the guy like mention like the stinky cheese, and, <laughs> and then it's so like, good. <laughs> yeah, and then it floats over to like another table where they're they're sorting something else, and then it kind of pans up and it goes into another room, and you you see you know the guy with the the he's like he's like tallying something on the chalkboard. I don't even remember what it was. Uh, totally. I, I don't. Maybe they're just inventorying. But it looked. It, it was. I was confused a little bit there because it looked like a menu board. It is. And I had the a, subtitles only yeah. say the word sandwiches. Yeah. So I was just like, so is this a place where like the homeless gather and like put their food together and then they turn it into like a restaurant? I was like, I was a little confused at first. Um, but then I was like, okay, I think this is just like the way this section of the society organizes itself is they have this like central meeting place where they probably share, like there's the guy sorting all the different types of cigarettes and cigar butts in front of them and stuff. Yeah. And then Um, he has like a whole bit where he like thinks about smoking the cigar and then he puts it back down and like, like there's little bits within the shot like that are happening throughout. Yeah. And then and then it pans up and you you get like and there's a hidden cut there for sure but yeah. uh, but it, it it blends pretty seamlessly I would say and then you get the best part of the shot for me which is when it goes through the window yeah, yeah. through the yeah I don't I don't know how they did it I don't know I, I mean just, I have, must have I have just a, not been glass there right it just looked like glass that's what I that, that was my guess I was like oh maybe there was there wasn't glass well there. no so there definitely is glass there you can see um as the camera gets real close to the glass a piece of glass slides across uh. and my thinking is that they what they probably did was they had the camera there and that piece of glass that slides across allows the lens to come through the glass and then mm-hmm. i want to say that the the window itself is probably removable and that moves with the camera forward as it goes into the room right. that's that's how i would guess that they did it but i don't know yeah, that's the fact that they crazy. got us guessing is just so cool. Yeah, there's yeah. a ton of techniques in this that I have no idea how they did. Like, mm-hmm. just consistently, the the lighting, um, camera moves, all sorts of stuff. Pretty pretty mind blowing. Well, and Jared, oh, you mentioned awesome. it, but like cameras at that time were like not sophisticated at all. In order, like like I don't know how they could accomplish that shot with as much movement, as much like you know, focus pulling as they probably had to do on that. Yeah. Um, and, and just with all the elements in the scene, like it's not like a big open room. It's a tightly packed room that they're moving well, through. <laughs> you, there's a um there's a there's a scene that I think really shows how difficult it must have been to pull focus back back then. And I'm sure you know it's all lens dependent and whatever. But do you remember that scene where the police investigator goes to the house that the the woman who's hard of hearing lives at and also, you know, you're gonna talk about the trash can. The yeah, the there. trash yeah. can. So the trash can, he goes, he picks, he grabs the trash can and he pulls it into focus. Like the camera doesn't focus. The, the position has already been found where it's in focus, and it's like not deep at all. Mm-hmm. Like he pulls it like maybe five inches back towards the camera, and it, and it's all of a sudden in focus. And it's like shit, dude. They were working with very very limited windows of focus. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was insane. And that, but I would just want to give a shout out too to that scene in general. That cool. cop who starts poking around and he's, he's. Uh, that's what I like seeing. Like, oh, this is an investigative person who's like good at his job, kind of. Like, he gets that paper. He asks the question about which paper does this guy read. He like looks at the table. He like doesn't notice obviously the the windowsill yet. And like, I don't know. It's just I really dug that scene, and that was some of the active investigation stuff that this movie was doing that I was super into was represented in that scene specifically. The cut later on when he has the realization about the windowsill and they're like straight back in the apartment's mm-hmm. really great. Like mm-hmm. some very clever editing. You get the red pencil too. Yeah. yeah it is. It is really good editing. Yeah. It's it, the technical elements of this movie, I think were, were uh, just mind blowing to me. I, I can't believe they pulled off some of the stuff they did. And I think that that leads me to kind of, talking about sound yeah um because this movie is the first film that that fritz long made with sound in it and you know it came out four years after the advent of sound with the jazz singer in 1927 um so like this is a relatively new technology at the time uh, anyone who saw Babylon last year <laughs> knows how fucking difficult it was to capture sound at this time. Um, and also, you know, that explains what, what you brought up earlier, Stephen, which is like that they there are entire sequences of this movie that are silent. And it's because it was so difficult to capture sound at the time. But I think like the thing that that really got me about sound in this movie is the way that it's it's using sound as a story driver. Yeah, and the the whistling is you know I, I know that that's a, a you know a, a frequently talked about bit of this movie, but it's like I don't think you can talk about it enough because it is, it is so crucial to the storytelling in this film, um, and and it it was just like it was amazing to me um, that they could they that they were that prescient about like what you could do with sound and that they were that creative to to play with it in that way. I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts on that? how creative he was with the absence of sound too. Like it, it was a budgetary reason that they don't have sound in every scene, but the, the scenes where they choose not to have sound are like perfect. Uh, that first police raid on that bar, uh, there's no sound for that whole chase all the way up until the lady says the word cops basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just all these little moments like this where it's like, you almost forget that the sound needs to be there. Right. And uh, I, I just found all of that very effective and crazy experimental for when they made it. Like, it's it's not just, hey, we're making a movie with sound and we're going to, you know, uh, do our best with it. It's, no, we're going to very deliberately play with this tool to the fullest extent we possibly can. And in a way, maybe taking a, a restriction, like a budgetary concern, and turning it into a strength and, fi- and being selective about when they employ it. I'm thinking, yeah. too, of, like, after they mark Peter Lorre's character with that M, mm-hmm. and he's like... and. I feel like a lot of that sort of chasing through the streets is silent too. Totally. And then when it returns, it's jarring in a, in a good way. Like you'll just have like 30 seconds of silence and then like uh, a fire truck will go by mm-hmm. and, and the alarm's going off and it kind of like makes me pop up a little bit. It's like, it was super, super cool. And the trial is so loud compared to the rest mm-hmm. of the movie. There's so much screaming. It's just vicious yeah. in a way that the, the rest of the movie isn't really. Yeah, the mm-hmm. word to describe it in my mind is like cacophony. Like yes. it just yes. beco- it just becomes this just you know this yeah. droning like like you know just it's so intense at that point in the movie. Which what better way to capture the sound of a mob? I mean, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's it's super super effective and like it, it kind of like r- reminds me of like what we 
were talking about earlier, you know, in the pre-chat, we were talking a little bit about Lord of the Rings and just like all the wrong lessons that were taken from that movie. And I think that this is probably in some ways similar in that, like, you know, it's using this new technology in such a creative and, 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 uh, effective way, um, that like, I, you know, it makes me wonder, like, were there examples of people just using sound completely wrong around the time too? I'm sure that there were, um, but it's like when you use these tools in a creative way, that's, that's story driven, it's so much more effective than just like, you know, Oh, look, look at this magic trick that we can pull off now, you know? Um, I don't know. I just, I just was blown away by it. And the fact, and the fact that this came out four years after sound even was a thing, like that's just, it's incredible to me that they were that creative with it already. And the sound design holds up. I mean, the scene yes. with the, the, the man following the whistling, the blind man following the whistling, like the, the way the whistling comes in and out still yep. is freaky. It's like, are they going to be able to even follow this? Like, yeah. And yeah. he's like, can you hear it? Can you hear it? And like we can faintly hear it. And the guy, the, the person he's talking to is kind of speaking over it, kind of stomping on the whistle a little bit. Mm -hmm. We're kind of like, we're thinking, no, shush, shush, don't talk now. Listen now. He's, you can hear it again. So it really plays with all of that stuff super, super well. And you're right. From a technical standpoint, it's, it's impressive to this day. Like, yeah. You know. And I mean, it should be mentioned, this movie does not have a score. The score is essentially whistling of the in the Hall of the Mountain King, like that's which is basically all Fritz Long himself, which I think is super cool. He, uh, Peter Lorre oh, yeah. didn't whistle, so Fritz Long. Oh, did really? Himself. Yeah, and Fritz Long is not a good whistler, but he thought that his yeah. creepy whistling had a nice, uncanny presence, and it totally does. I think he's underselling himself. The whistling is Probably. pretty good. It is pretty. It's good. pretty good. He's on key. <laughs> I think we're kind of getting into to maybe wrap up note territory here. Um, I'll start with Stephen. Is there are there any things that you wanted to point out before we wrap up on the episode? Uh, no, I think we've pretty much nailed all the talking points I wanted to get to. But I just want to say one more time: it's a very funny movie. Like if someone hasn't seen it, they don't know what to expect. There are just some very well conceived jokes in it that like caught me off guard. Uh, yeah, I just think it's a great time, even if it is a little slow. It's it's wonderful. It's it's remarkably entertaining for yeah. as old as it is. Yeah, and it is, and it, it, I'm so glad you said that because when you brought that up earlier, it's like oh, we got to talk about how funny it is. Like, I'm gonna say it is funny. It's like it, it kind of like I didn't realize it until you said it. I was like, but oh right, there was a bunch of times I was laughing in this movie. Have you seen and, the Cremator? It's a Czech I don't film. Think so. Uh, so that movie's maybe a little funnier than this, but comparing this movie to that while I was watching it, kind of like Rosetta Stoned me being like, no, this movie's really, really funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it is. It's got a lot going on here. It's upsetting, dark, dr filled with dread, uh, intense, and then also funny, bizarre, yeah. and just weird. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's true of the best movies. It's like they know how to bridge the gap between all these different disparate elements yes. that you don't think should fit in together, but they totally do. Yeah, no, I think I think that's fair. Um, I had a couple of little bullet pointy things too. I wanted to hit. Let's um, do it. We mentioned we mentioned a little bit about the beggars in terms of like the the community that we're sh we're shown there. I really loved that stuff not only just visually like we talked about but just that the exploration of that part of the culture of like these people who again they pool their stuff they're out on the streets they're really responsible for the capture they're like the most important component of it by far in my opinion and 
it was giving me vibes of um steven have you ever seen tampopo no i've always wanted to oh that movie is awesome yeah and uh, Drew, I don't know if you if you can sniff where this is going, but do you remember that part in Tampopo where if if you and we'll we'll speak lightly, Stephen, because I haven't seen it, but the movie's very vignette-y, and at one point we get introduced to these this group of homeless people who are have like incredibly sophisticated palates and like tastes, and they they just like kind of go through what they rummage from the dumpster, and it's like grade a like french cuisine shit it's really funny but i was getting sort of that uh, that sort of vibe with this with the exploration of this sort of quote-unquote homeless community that's depicted in m is it's like there's this uh, kind of a cool sort of intelligence about it and like it's like it actually doesn't look that bad like it's like i, I live like that you're eating stinky cheese and you're on the prowl for like a killer and like you get marking people with M's. This sounds kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. But, this uh, sounds like a blast. Yeah. yeah it's like a, you should try it out sometime. I've actually thought about that. I've actually thought about like, Oh, what if I tried to live under a bridge for a night and just like to experience what it would be like, or like begging for change at an intersection? Like, how does that feel? But then I thought more about it. It's like, ah, I, this is pretty insecure of me, but I would hate to get recognized by someone I know, like driving around, like a friend of mine being like, it's an interesting reason Jared? to not want to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can yeah. think of about a dozen downside. other ones that would, would be top of my I list. I mean, before getting that. murdered would be the ultimate downside, <laughs> but like, and especially like who wouldn't want to kill me in that scenario. It's just like, I just want to spend a day in this bad life before I go back to my good one. Like they're going to, they're going to shank me up and they probably should. You're so. like an undercover boss for the whole Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh man those were pretty much my notes drew did you have any you wanted to to hit on about m before we kind of get out of here for this week you know no i mean like i'm looking through the notes that i took while i was watching and i think we've pretty much hit everything that i wanted to talk about um i think you know just as a as a wrap-up thing i think again going back to what we were kind of talking about at the beginning but don't be scared away from old movies, people like watch this shit because it's like, it is, it holds up in a way that like, even if you're not like, this is my favorite movie, you can be like, it's, it's incredible to see the origins of, you know, movies that we, we think of as just being like, Oh, there's like a hundred years of history of film that have built to like being able to do this, this perfectly. And it's like, no, they were doing it a hundred years ago. You know, and it's like it's really cool to have that revelatory experience with these kind of older films. Absolutely. And it's so weird that it's so specific to movies. Like if you told someone from our generation, like, hey, there's this great painting that was made uh, 300 years ago. No one's going to say, like, I can't be good. That (laughs) painting's old. It's 300 years old. How could it be good? But people do say that about movies. It's so weird. I guess it's because there's a technological component to it. But they're just like, that can't be good. It's super old. They're just like, when did the fact that art is old make it seem like it's just it's again, it seems a specific criticism of film. And I don't know why. Did you guys have that hesitancy when you were younger, like watching black and white stuff? Because it just never bugged me. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why. I think it's like it's it's almost one of those things where like enough people around you say that that you believe that you believe that sure um you know it's like it's like 
it, it's the way that like rumors spread, you know, it's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. like it, 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 you know, somebody says something and you're like, even if you, you is, or actually, especially if you don't have a preconceived notion about that thing, that gets burrowed into your brain yeah. and you can't let go of it. Cause I feel um, like a lot of these people just haven't even engaged with older media. That's why they would even think for sure. Way, no, right? that's a hundred percent. It, it yeah. it's, it's literally just that they haven't watched it because I remember, I mean, I had that, the awakening experience for me was watching Singing in the Rain in an early film class that I took. It's an amazing and I was just movie. like, yeah. I was like, holy fuck. This is like <laughs> one of the most entertaining things I've ever seen in my life. Speaking and, of talkies, by the way. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. And, and, but I was just like, you know, it worked on every level for yeah. me. And I was like, I, I could never have predicted that before that point because I just had this idea burrowed in my brain. And, and I, you know, we, I, I encounter this a lot talking to, to friends, you know, about doing the podcast and I'm like, oh, we're watching The Big Sleep from 1946. And they're like, oh, man, that's so old. Like, can I like, is that going to be good? And I'm like, yeah, it's yeah, fucking it's amazing. amazing. It's awesome. <laughs> Have you seen The Big Sleep, Stephen? No, but I've seen a lot oh, of noir. I, I need to see that one. Dude, sure. dude that is, is one of the sexiest banger, movies I've ever seen. Yeah, really? dude, okay. it's so good, dude. It's it's incredible. I think my bias against old movies kind of got started a little bit of the opposite of Drew's in a way by film. Like I didn't go to film school. I just took some classes at college that were about film. And I just remember they would just spoon feed us these Janus films, like old dry movies. And I get it from their mind. It's like, Oh, we have to explore the foundational principles about what a movie could be. And then I saw something like citizen Kane and I was like, Oh shit. Like this is just, good like really really good so i went into this phase where i was like okay more often than not these old movies are kind of stale and they're boring but every once in a while you get these ones that are really really good now i'm that num that percentage is but i mean growing. i think that's true of all movies that's what i was gonna say like yeah that's just every decade <laughs> i think i think that's the thing that's lost on most people is like they look at like the current output of movies and for some reason they get it in their mind that like the quality is on average higher in some way. And it's like, no, it's always been a mixed bag. Yeah, yeah. It's always great been great, you know, five great movies in a year. And then like a bunch of like schlock and, and, you know, average and shit. Bullshit. Um, but like, like then you go back and, you know, speaking of 20 years, you know well, yeah. I mean? And like, speaking nobody. of Jack lemon, like you go back and watch the apartment and you're like, Oh, every fucking romantic comedy ever is pulling from yeah. this movie. Totally. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm just super glad we saw this. And Steven, it's been awesome having you on the show it's been too. A ton I hope of fun. you can come on again sometimes. And like, anytime. Yeah, I just i I really liked it. And again, I went into it kind of nervous because I don't like stories in this in this vein of like they just they just bother me. They upset me. They make me sad, and I don't enjoy them at all. M really, it's it's strong enough to to break through all those barriers I have, where I just like I don't like the subject matter. This is a little ridiculous, but sometimes it's weird to see black and white German footage, like just as when we were born and how we what we associate with that, like um, subtitles, super old. I don't know, and it it goes beyond all of those things. It is really exciting, thoughtful, uh, heartbreaking, and funny, and terrifying movie. It's got so much going on. I'm so so glad we checked it out. Yeah, I am too. I, you know, this was kind of a flyer for me, but I, I had a feeling about it when I read the synopsis. I was like, they were making serial killer movies in 1931. <laughs> I'm, I'm fucking in. 
Um, and yeah, it, it didn't disappoint. I mean, this is for sure one of my favorite movies we've covered on the show. Um, wow. It's going to it's gonna make it into some awards categories when we get to the Unas next week. But Hell yeah. Uh, yeah, excited that we got, got a chance to watch it. And uh, yeah, like Jared said, thank you so much for coming on, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. Totally. Yeah, it's been great. Um, I want to get you on for a horror movie next time because you have an encyclopedic knowledge (laughs) of horror that I could never begin to tap into. Yeah. Uh, Well, that's a good point because, Stephen, if you've got one in the chamber, we'd love for you to put on the replacement. In the chamber right now, ready to go. Okay, what do we got? Damon Packard's Reflections of Evil from 2002. Hell Which yeah. Never even heard of it. I don't think love either this. of you have ever seen a movie like this. <laughs> That's why I picked Hell it. yeah, dude. <laughs> I think Reflections it's really gonna, of evil? I think it's really going to fuck with your head. Yeah. Um, so there's like two cuts. I'll, I'll send you a copy of the better version. Um, but the, it's a, a true schizophrenic nightmare of a movie in just the best way. Um, I don't even want to spoil too much about it because mm, I want you no, to go lo- in and be upset. <laughs> Now is it is it a readily available thing, Drew? Are you seeing it on your? You your will not answer? be able to find it easily. I have it on my Google Drive. I'll send you a copy, <laughs> if that's okay. cool. Well, yeah, we'll we'll do it just because it's so off the wall that I I'm down to just like, I you know even if people can't watch this one, I don't even fucking care. Let's do it. <laughs> Well, it, it actually looks like you can uh, watch it on Fandor. Fandor, so, okay. Um, I, I, like you said, I don't know what cut of it, it that is, but um, it's it's available enough that I I'm down to do it. Well, we had that we had a blast with that Sling Blade episode, which was a terrible <laughs> movie that n- nobody could watch except for me. Um, so was... I'll, actually, this will be a great challenge, Stephen, to see if Videodrome has this. Okay, yeah, because they have like almost everything. So I'll be curious to see if they have it. I hope they do. Yeah, fun stuff. All right. Well, Reflections of Evil is going in at number three. Let's do a quick recap of the board, and then we'll throw that dart. So our board, again, as I said at the beginning, but uh, updated, we've got number one, You Can Count on Me, number two, Akiru, number three, Reflections of Evil, number four, Rio Bravo, number five, Operation Condor, number six, Anomalisa, number seven, Amadeus, number eight, Pi, number nine, Get Carter, number 10, The Limey, number 11, Coraline, number 12, The Straight Story, number 13, Night Moves, number 14, The Karate Kid, number 15, Friends of Eddie Coyle, number 16, Secrets and Lies, number 17, Titan, number 18, 18, Snatch, number 19, Strange Days, and number 20, The Terminator. The Terminator Drewski. Should I throw it lefty-righty? What do you think? It's up to you, man. You make that decision. Steven, what you got? Left or right? I'm 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 right-handed. I'm going with left, for sure. All right. All right. I'm throwing lefty. I'll be right back. Gentlemen, we have... The next film, The Dart Has Spoken. What's it got for us this week? Eight. Number eight is Pi. Pi! We brought up Darren Aronofsky earlier. <laughs> it, it makes sense. Have you guys Hell seen yeah. Pi? No. I never have. Pi is very good. I, I like Pi quite a bit. It's oh, I, I'm interested to watch sense. it as a debut film and... Um, you know, it's it's kind of a relic of of the you know '90s independent film movement. I'm I'm really excited to check this one out. Yeah, dude, I I just remember someone in high school talking about it and being like, "That movie's weird." And then um, 
for some reason, I just have not seen a lot of Aronofsky movies. Like most of them I haven't seen. And I, I remember putting it on and being like, oh, man, I gotta, let's start at the beginning. So anyway, we'll talk about all that shit next week. But a double no-see, and it should be a fun one to chat about, dude. 1998's Pie, currently available with purchase for rental. So not, not free to stream anywhere, unfortunately. But a pretty famous movie. Absolutely. Should be available. That's going to be our episode next week for this week's episode on M. We can wrap up here. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Please remember to rate, review, and give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at dartboardmovienight. Artwork for the show is created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric. Sorry, Mark. Later. Later.